0: My guest today on the Living Peace podcast is Pauline Tesler. Pauline Tesler is a transformative peacemaker, collaborative lawyer, and author of several books on collaborative law. She is also one of the founders of the Integrative Law Movement. Integrative Law Movement views the practice of law from the perspective of healing of human interactions. Pauline Tesler is an internationally renowned peace educator and frequently teaches lawyers around the world on how to integrate mindfulness and neuropsychology into the practice of law. Pauline Tesler, welcome to Living Peace Podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Thank you. Uh, So you started out your career as a fierce advocate for women and children.
1: Yes, I was a public interest lawyer for a legal services backup center that did test case litigation and class actions.
0: And then um, something happened that placed you on the path of becoming a peacemaker. So what happened?
1: Well, there were two stages to that transition. The first stage happened when, there was, um, when Ronald Reagan was elected president, and one of his agendas was to um, cut off funding for programs like ours because he thought it was appalling that the government should pay for lawyers to sue the government. So um, my choice was to stay in the program and spend a lot of my time raising money or to leave and spend my time practicing (laughs) law. And I chose the latter. And I became a partner in the first all-women law firm in Northern California. It's a family law firm. And in my naivete, I thought that um, I had been doing test case litigation for women and children. So it would be similar to do private practice of family law. And that was when I began the slow transition toward becoming a peacemaker, because in family law, um, everything is in shades of gray, whereas in my public interest practice, it was a matter of black and white and being on the white horse for the forces of truth and justice. Um, In family law, if you come in with that attitude, um, you can do a great deal of harm. And... It did take me a while to see this, to see that although I was very good at it, and I loved litigation just as a thing to do, um, it suited my temperament at the time, um, I gradually saw that my clients were equally unhappy whether we had nominally won or nominally lost the legal battle. And um, it became increasingly, excuse me, I, I have still a residual cough, it became increasingly painful to continue to do that work. I had a flourishing practice and I didn't want to do it anymore. So I started a process of investigating how... I started with the proposition that conflict is a normal human experience because I had certainly seen that in my family law work. And I thought that other cultures must have wrestled with how to do this. And some of them may well have come up with better answers than ours had for how you deal with the kind of conflict that involves normal human relationships that have just got into trouble or human relationships that really need to continue in some fashion. Um, And we all know, of course, that going through litigation destroys any possibility of of a healthy relationship afterwards. So... That was what I was looking for. I started studying, <laughs> excuse me, studying with a transpersonal anthropologist named Angelise Aryan who um, was studying how the wisdom of ancient cultures could be translated into forms that would be useful in, at that time, the 20th century. And she mentored me for a couple of years in how to bring ancient wisdom into human conflict resolution i learned a great deal from her but i also learned that it didn't it didn't map well onto court-based and court annexed processes and that really was my dilemma at the point that i read a little journal article a little practice newsletter one of one of the lawyers family lawyers in northern california had Onto a conference and heard this guy Stu Webb um, talking about this new idea that he had. This must have been in about 1991, I guess, that I read this. Um, he called it collaborative law. And I read that little article, and um, the way I describe it to myself and sometimes to others is that I once saw when I was a kid a demonstration of what happens when you have a super saturated solution of sugar and you add one more tiny little bit of sugar, and suddenly these beautiful crystals start to form spontaneously. And it was like that, having this, this piece of Stu's inspiration land um, in the midst of all of the, the work that I had done with Angie Arion, and I'd been studying in psychology, archetypal psychology, a lot of stuff, and it pulled it all together. And, and I had just a sudden awakening. And I said, oh, well, I guess that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And it was. Um, so I spent some time thinking about how to build a, a practice community of colleagues who'd like to do this with me. Um, and I invited those people who I most liked seeing on the other side of family law cases, the ones who really did have of commitment to at least rather than litigating, and we pulled together a group of I think it was about eighteen lawyers, and we began talking about how we were going to do this work. And that's really where where my peacemaking began. Mm.
0: Well, that's that's really really uh, fascinating, Pauline. Uh, uh, yeah, Crystal student <laughs> Excuse me. Stu, so in many ways, was, was my own inspiration, and know inspired so many people um, to come uh, to this practice. Uh, but I want to pick up on something that, that you said, and that is conflict is a normal uh, human experience. And knowing a little bit about the work uh, that you do, um, what, fo- what, what followed from that is that we approach conflict resolution and conflict as a healing modality where we uh, not only focus on um, reaching a settlement, which is so prevalent in the, in, in the, in the legal profession, but truly resolving, res- bringing a resolution and resolution from within. So could you talk about that, about uh, the evolution of, of, of your thinking and of your journey to see conflict resolution and, and peacemaking as a healing profession.
1: Yeah, well, that journey began when my practice community began taking on collaborative cases. Um, but I must say that in those early days, this would have been in 1993, 1994, maybe through 95. Um, although we were Doing collaborative cases, and we had all of the participation agreements that one needs and all of the good faith commitments, I was still at heart an adversarial lawyer, and I think everybody in that group was. Um, we didn't know it. We didn't even have that language for it. We thought we were settling cases. What well, more was there to aspire to? Uh-huh. But built into my DNA, or maybe it wasn't the DNA because it's changed slowly, but built into my epigenetics anyway, was a a real passion for winning for my client and it took quite a long time for me to even see that much less begin to um deconstruct it and and try to turn it around and see where it came from and what it was accomplishing if anything and that process i don't think really began until I met Peggy Thompson. Mm-hmm. Unbeknownst to me, um, right in the, right over in the East Bay, not ten miles away, a group of mental health professionals had had a similar kind of epiphany to the one that Stu had shared in the legal side, which was mm-hmm. that they were people who had been doing court-annex custody evaluations in high-conflict divorces, and they realized that what they're being asked to do is use the skills that they had developed to be healers um, and using it to annoy with the seal of approval one parent over the other. The good parent, the not so good parent, or the bad parent, because that's what you do in a custody evaluation. You have to tell the judge who's the better parent. And they realized that they were damaging families almost sometimes irreparably but they certainly weren't doing anything very good for anybody not even the children and Peggy and her colleagues started a think tank in the early 90s trying to figure out what other ways away from the courts there might be to deliver the services that they had and the the knowledge they had in a way that could be constructive beginning with treating divorce as a normal family transition, because if 50% or more of people are going to experience it, it's statistically normal. Um, So they developed a coaching model. um, And when Peggy and I met, um, it was in the mm, around 1997, 1998, we were astonished to discover that we each had A half of the picture and that if we put our work together, we could have something extremely powerful because what she had realized was that without lawyers on board completely committed to a process that was healing and hopefully transformative, that once the people who came out of their process consulted lawyers, which they pretty much always did, the lawyers often undid the good work that they had achieved. And what we were learning in collaborative practice as lawyers is that we simply didn't have the skills Mm -hmm. that we needed to do a deeper kind of work. And although some people who were on the more high-functioning end of the spectrum, you might say, could get to uh, a settlement agreement with our skills, anybody who was more challenging, we were having real problems with and didn't have anything to bring to the table really to deal with it. So it was another magic moment when Peggy and I discuss developing a training model and teaching together. And by the late 1990s, we had an incredible training team. It was Peggy and me and Nancy Ross, who was the person with Peggy who developed the interdisciplinary team model. And the two lawyers who were training were me and Stu. And we had Mark Hill, a financial professional from Southern California, who was an incredible uh, teacher about divorce finance from a neutral perspective. And we we did some remarkable training starting then. The other thing that Peggy did, which was amazing, um, people don't know about her contributions nearly as much as they should, is that Peggy really is the person who first envisioned that we needed an organization that would be an umbrella organization for this work and it was her visionary understanding of that need way before anybody else saw a need for it you know at that time we had a a, a group that an interdisciplinary group that was meeting once a month for lunch in the bay area and that was like 15 people and peggy said we need an international organization Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: we just kind of laughed and humored her but she really wanted it and so we did a nonprofit work to create what we first called the California Academy of Collaborative Professionals but before the papers came back from the IRS with our 501c3 approval we realized it had to be the American Academy of Collaborative Professionals because it was moving so fast across the country and again before the papers came back we had to change the name a third time to the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals because the Canadians were now big players in this movement. And so all of that happened within a period of three or four years. It was quite amazing. An idea who time, whose time had come. Mm. So you, you asked me about the journey to Peacemaker, and that's a long way of getting to my personal answer, which is that it was only by working <laughs> over time on integrated interdisciplinary teams where all of the professionals meet as equals. It isn't the lawyers who are in charge and then we, quote, use or bring in other professions, but everybody meeting as equals in the team environment to work with a given family. When when we began doing that work, which I think, for me, would have been in the early 2000s, -hmm. early 2000s, What started happening was that the mental health professionals would insist on a kind of process management that the lawyers hadn't envisioned, that involved planning before meetings and debriefing after meetings every time, Um, and then debriefing after every case ended to see what we could learn from our mistakes, because it's the mistakes, of course, that are the richest, most fertile ground for learning. And... When lawyers sit in a room with two mental health professionals who are equally empowered and who are committed to the same goals we are, this is like a a hyperbaric oxygen chamber for for learning new ways of understanding the job description. And that's really where it happened. Mm. So what do you see,
0: Aline, as the next steps in the evolution of collaborative practice uh, specifically and more generally uh, the peacemaking work that you do?
1: Well, it's a very interesting and complex question and the answers are not the same necessarily, I don't think. Um, The collaborative practice movement is is now very solid. Um, It's an international movement. There are people who are doing this work in as many as 25 or more countries. There are state and national organizations all over the world. Um, IACP still does remarkable work of, of of being an umbrella and a gathering place for all of that. But it's also the case that once something becomes very widespread, and I think it's becoming true of collaborative practice, you're no longer dealing with the pioneers and the early adopters. You're dealing with, from both the perspective of the clients and the professionals, you're dealing with a bell-shaped curve of, you know, people who are outliers on both ends and then the vast middle. And we're seeing people who have widely differing degrees of commitment to doing this work as a transformative peacemaking practice. There are many people who have every right to call themselves collaborative lawyers who are still really doing um, a legal template kind of settlement agreement practice. Mm-hmm. And then there are people um, like myself and uh, many others who are way out on the other end of the spectrum, seeing the real meaning of the work as helping people who are in conflict to, to rise to the next level of understanding so that specifically for people with children, they can raise a healthy next generation. It's, it's immensely important work for the culture as well as for the clients. That's the perspective that I see as most important, and I don't think that we can expect to see the entire collaborative community embrace that anytime soon. Um, And I think we're seeing the organizational structures become more focused on what they would call serving members, which is quite different from developing a transformative peacemaking movement. Mm-hmm. So although I remain deeply committed to IACP and bring this perspective that we're talking about into all of the teaching that I do with IACP, I realized um, the significance of what I just tried to sketch for you, that what it meant was, and there's another thread up it that I want to add before I pull it together, which is that although collaborative practice is very Very widespread in the family law community, it remains, I would say, almost unknown in the broader legal community. Mm -hmm. And it remains marginalized for that reason um, in the minds of lawyers in large firms, um, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the referral sources for a large number of people going through family transition. Those people send their clients to traditional adversarial lawyers because they regard collaborative practice as crunchy granola, things that people on the left coast do, um, and not something for cases involving large businesses, a lot of assets, complex issues. And, of course, quite the opposite is true. But I don't see a way that this message about collaborative practice and about the potential of it for all families and the social urgency Of this kind of peacemaking happening for families, I don't see the collaborative practice movement as the source of that message. It has enough to do to make sure that the quality of collaborative representation remains high. And it's out of that convergence of of natural forces, really, that I decided that where my work needed to go was in taking the learning about peacemaking that I think has been articulated within high-level interdisciplinary collaborative teams that this is where this kind of cutting-edge understanding has emerged and bringing the understanding about that work out to the larger legal community in ways that don't lock it to signing disqualification agreements and doing a specific collaborative methodology much as i wish the entire profession When it works with people in interpersonal conflicts, not corporate conflicts, much as I wish all of my colleagues would sign on and learn to do collaborative process, that's not happening anytime soon. It doesn't mean that lawyers who are handling will contests or small professional practice breakups Mm
2: -hmm. can't
1: be peacemakers. They can be. But in order to bring that message to them, another vehicle is needed that doesn't lock it to the disqualification agreement that's at the heart of collaborative practice. So, out of that sense of urgency, um, I decided that I would work in a nonprofit organization, which I, I named the Integrative Law Institute. And through that vehicle, I've been I've developed something like 20 different training workshops that integrate perspectives from traditional wisdom practices body-mind awareness practices um, all of the emerging neurosciences restorative justice positive psychology um, and the methodologies that we know are most conducive to peacemaking which would be transformative mediation and interdisciplinary team collaboration but teaching workshops under the rubric of integrative law, which is far less threatening than requiring that people sign on to collaborative practice in order to learn these understandings. And I've been bringing these workshops wherever people invite me. Um, Some bar associations and collaborative practice groups have invited me. I've brought workshops to Canada and South Africa and Brazil. It's a burgeoning movement that's in its early days now, but it is starting to take shape and to have um, an articulated message. Some of the people who are doing the work of integrative law are in academia. I would think particularly of Susan Dykoff, for example. Um, Some are doing work on an individual one-on-one basis to help people transform their practices personally. I would put Kim Wright there. Um, and I'm doing what I did in the collaborative practice movement, which, I'm, which is essentially being a teacher, a theoretician, and a writer, um, trying to, to spark large-scale change by identifying change agents and connecting them together to bring this kind of understanding of the work of a lawyer back into their communities and into their legal work. Mm. Believe uh, me, when I first learned uh, of integrative
0: law and of, of the work that you're doing, what came to me um, was the paraphrase of this quote from my teacher, and that is, uh, you can't be in pieces and bring peace. <laughs> I like that. You can't, you can't, you can't even be aware. You, we can't bring peace but we are not even aware uh, as practitioners. Um, of the pieces that we're carrying. Uh, And so I I don't know if you have any reflections on that, because it seems that so much of what you do and what you're passionate about um, is this idea that any peacemaking, anything that we try to do to our clients uh, begins right here with us.
1: Absolutely. It can't begin anywhere else. I think that there's a similar maxim in the therapeutic world, which is that you can't really be a very effective therapist um, beyond the level of your own personal evolution and development. And that's really, it, it, it seems self evident when we say it, but I, I think there are people who haven't really reflected on that and they need to. Um, that we, when we're doing peacemaking work, we're not abstracting out of our client's story issues that can be resolved somewhere else. We're working with the people in conflict and helping them to take a brave step beyond where they were willing to go yesterday in terms of a conversation about the roots of the conflict. Well, in order to even begin to do that work, We need a whole range of new awarenesses, starting with awarenesses. And we need to be aware of our own prejudices, biases, and reactivity so that we can tell what's us and what's our clients. And we need a very broad and deep and subtle new skill set To be able to take a room in which the air has suddenly changed for the worse in ways that we don't even understand because people who've had long relationships in conflict can send signals that are completely invisible to anybody but themselves and yet the air in the room changes. We need to to develop our entire repertoire of capacities as human organisms Not just our our cognitive thinking brains, which is what law school tells us is the only part that is allowed in the room if we want to be ethical lawyers. And that's nonsense. We need to be developing our intuition. We need to be developing our, our empathy. We need to understand about mirror neurons and the kind of information that can come in really through microscopic changes in facial muscles we need to understand simple interventions that we can do that are almost below the level of perception, but not quite, that cause people to relax rather than to become more stressed. We need to understand the power of narrative and story and restoring. We need to know about the power of curious questions, curious questions that we don't already know the answer to. There's a very revolutionary idea for lawyers who are taught never to ask a question. You don't know the answer. I mean, the the domains in which there is relevant information and skill building is truly unlimited at this point in history because the margins, the, the boundaries between domains of knowledge are dissolving. And we're seeing that, that law isn't separate from psychology or from... Um, from the health of communities, the health of bodies and souls. All of those things are part of the work that we're doing. And our choice is to do it blindly as unguided missiles, unaware either of the harm we're doing or of the opportunities for health and healing. Or we can become exquisitely attuned and aware and make use of all of the capacities of everyone in the room to rise to a higher level of awareness.
2: Mm.
1: and just again to, to build on something
0: that you said Pauline um, these so-called boundaries, these compartments that we've been taught to, to comply with Yeah. So lawyers only deal with the facts and then there is a therapist who only deals with emotions and then there is a doctor that only deals with the body uh, and we're creating these neat separations um, they actually do not work. If we are, as lawyers, if we are, and, and this I think goes for whether we are litigators or peacemakers, um, regardless of how we show up, but if we do not learn the very things that you teach, the emotional intelligence, to connect with people in a constructive way, to tune into their energy, to tune into our own energy, then regardless of what capacity we show up in, um, we are not showing up fully. And, 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 and we are not healing our clients and at times perhaps maybe hurting them even more.
1: Hurting them, hurting ourselves, and not mm-hmm. even being aware of it because I don't think any of us intentionally does anything that would harm a client. Mm-hmm. And yet we harm them every single day and really, I think the, the particular niche or the particular strength or, or capacity that, that I bring to this emerging movement about integrated law is that I seem to have an ability to speak with more traditionally minded lawyers in a way that they can hear. Um, so that, you know, if, if you invite people like that to come to a workshop in mindful awareness, they don't sign up for that workshop. If you invite those lawyers to show up for um, how you can use body-mind awareness practices for conflict resolution, they're not coming to that one. It's threatening to their sense of identity Mm -hmm. as lawyers, which they've spent a lifetime honing, building. And what I've learned is that if I speak first powerfully to the cognitive brain, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that... Every lawyer is open to that. That's what we do. What we were taught in law school that's actually helpful is the willingness to entertain any idea, mm-hmm. however repugnant it might be to us personally because that's what we learn when we learn to represent clients we don't particularly like or agree with. But we can take that capacity of, t- of entertaining the possible truth within any idea. Lawyers will respond to that. And the research is so powerful nowadays about the damage that's done to people in conflict by bringing them into an increasingly conflicted context of court-annexed processes. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, the the positive research that exists about the, the, the impact of rather simple interventions and awarenesses If you present those first cognitively, you have those lawyers sitting in the palm of your hand. And I guess it's a little bit manipulative, but sometimes I advertise these workshops in a way that says, there are things that you were taught about the human brain in conflict that that have been demonstrably been proven wrong. Mm -hmm. Your colleagues are learning about this. Mm -hmm. The train is leaving the station. You can still get on it. And in a day, learn enough to get you started on integrating these 21st century understandings into your awareness and your work. That's not threatening. That's inviting. Mm. But once they're in the room and the power of, of this research is presented to them, and then we move imperceptibly into experiential exercises that apply those concepts... I've had grown men in three-piece suits weep at the end of a workshop like that,
2: Mm.
1: not having expected anything to happen that had to do with them personally. Mm. It's very powerful stuff, and it can reach almost anyone if it's presented in a way they can hear. Mm. So
0: something you talked about, uh, and I know is very, very important to you, um, is story and identity And of course, I think both are are very connected. I always viewed um, our identity, it's just a powerful story that we get attached to, and then it becomes an identity. Uh, So in essence, I see conflict consisting of three elements, like the fire. Uh, It's uh, The oxygen being our story, and it's so prevalent, and we need it. We need the story to process what is happening. But then there is the attachment to the story that makes us believe that the story is us. So any attack on the story is attack on us. Correct. And of course, then there is heat, with heat being actually what's happening in our body. That's actually our feelings, our emotion, that energy in motion, which most of us are so disconnected from. So how do you approach uh, this very complicated tapestry of story and identity. Of course, that makes us who we are. It creates this distinction between us, but it also creates this idea of us and them and us versus them.
1: Well, there are, there are many, many ways of approaching this very powerful material. And I don't pretend that the way that I do it is the only way. But it seems to work for me and in teaching the, the kinds of lawyers that I teach. And again, I, I begin with the brain science, with the stuff that you can't argue with, because it's demonstrably true as a scientific fact that the way that the brain processes information and the way that we create the memories that are our personal story and therefore our identity, as we understand it, all of that is a function of processes in our brain that work very differently from how we imagine they work. So that memory... Is not a, It used to be thought even 20 years ago that, that our memories were like movie or video recorders and that somewhere in our brain, everything we had ever experienced was stored and that you could even hypnotize somebody and they could go back into parts of their brain and recover lost memories and a huge amount of damage was done to innocent people in the criminal justice system as a result of that. But what we now know, and the the reason I say know rather than believe, is that functional brain imaging has been supporting what the social psychologists and cognitive psychologists' research has been exploring for some time, which is that memory is something that's recreated every minute of every day that we live and breathe, and that no memory is ever the same twice. That by recalling an experience, Now, today, if I were to tell you any simple little story from my memory, sitting here at my computer, doing this video conversation with you, these circumstances under which I'm telling the story would alter it irreparably. Mm -hmm. And it would never be the same again. Now, I'm feeling sort of calm and enthusiastic and creative and engaged in this conversation. But suppose I was frightened or Mm -hmm. angry. And I recalled that same memory. It would become impinged with and become connected by neural pathways in my brain to emotions and bodily experiences of emotion that now become part of that memory.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, I mean, we could go on for some time about this, but those memories that get recreated and reconsolidated every day in our brain are the stories that we think, Of as reality Mm -hmm. but from that perspective there is no reality Mm -hmm. Um, there is a reconstruction of sensory perceptions and subjective experiences in a new context in a new way well if you start bringing that kind of research into the room with clever lawyers and most of us are pretty clever
2: Mm -hmm.
1: immediately they will start thinking about how to apply it in a criminal justice context. And mostly that's where the law has gone with this new brain science information. Mm -hmm. But where I want to go with it is into family systems and interpersonal conflict. Because, for example, we know that, do I have time to tell you a quick summary of a bit of research that relates to this? Yeah, There there was a research study done by, I guess it was probably social psychologists who did it. Um, They did research with couples who were just beginning their new committed relationship. Some of them had just married, some of them started living together. But they were in the first blush of new relationship. And each of the two in the couple were asked to complete a fairly extensive questionnaire, a multiple-choice questionnaire. And the questionnaire was looking at all aspects of their relationship, Um, you know, how well it was working, where there were difficulties, what they thought about the other partner, what they liked, what they disliked, where they thought problems might arise, those kinds of things. And then the questionnaires are put away. And people are called back in at varying points downstream, two, three, five years downstream. They're called back in. And some of those relationships are flourishing and happy. Some of them are very conflicted or even the couples have divorced or separated by now.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But regardless of that, what they do is they give these people a new instrument that's very short that just says, are you still together with your partner? How happy are you, basically? So you're put into... Two, cap, two conditions, happy couples, challenged couples.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Each member of the couple is asked to go back to that same questionnaire that they took the first time, and this time they're asked to do it again, but they're not asked to describe the relationship now. Mm. They're asked to fill it out as exactly as they can the way they did it the first time. They're just being asked to remember The boxes they checked when they did it when the relationship was new. And what was discovered was that the happy couples had an 85% accurate recall of how they had filled it out the first time, Mm -hmm. or at least matched. I don't know if it was recall or matched, but it was the same, 85% the same. And with the unhappy couples, it was fifteen percent the same. Mm -hmm. So the point being not only were they unhappy now, but they were completely unable to remember that they had ever been happy. Mm -hmm. They simply could not recapture a memory of happiness. Well, every time we as lawyers, if we're traditional lawyers in an adversarial mode, court annexed, court-based, every time we ask a client to tell that horrible story of how terrible our or seem to be exposed spouse behaved yesterday with the children, or the day that we separated, we're reconsolidating that memory, not only for now but forever. That this is the person who I've always had trouble with. He's always been horrible. He's always abused me, and it's just flat out not true.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if you present this kind of data, a mm-hmm. the lawyer, they're going to get interested in this. Mm-hmm. And it's a very easy step from there to what would have to change in how you interview your clients? Mm-hmm. What would have to change about what you believe to be, quote, fact about what your client is telling you? And how might that alter your ideas of how you can be most helpful to your client? Mm-hmm. That's
0: basically the job I'm doing. Mm. And so, on that note, uh, Pauline, what I want to ask you is this question: If you were, if you were a queen, and <laughs> you could, uh, and you could single-handedly uh, reform the way the lawyers of the future, and actually any helping professionals of the future, are taught, trained, prepared. Um, to not help, I don't like the word help, but to serve. To uh-huh. serve fully, because there is a big distinction between helping someone and serving. So how, what would you, uh, if you were queen, you could change everything and, and, and create this system of preparing, serving, not helping professionals, but serving professionals. Be they lawyers or therapists? Um, or any other uh, profession like that, what would you want to do? What would you do?
1: It's a hard question because I don't know if you're asking me a question about what could reasonably happen anytime soon or what could happen in my wildest fantasies, which isn't all that helpful, really. Um, Well, I like
0: actually, You know, sometimes uh, I think what may seem like a wildest fantasy uh, becomes a, a reality a few years down the road. Uh, because just even as i look at the work you're doing the work Stu has done uh you know going 20 30 years ago this might have been a wild fantasy so i like to aim at the fantasy um even if it may not seem um realistic right now but let's aim for that and then and then we can talk about you know what 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 may be, what may be realistic
1: well i think that the single the single doable change that starts my thinking is that our law school education start to finish has to be redone. Um, And if it remained three years of law school, that that third year of law school would be aimed at, specializing lawyer because it's a waste right now the third year of law school people take easy courses and mm-hmm. imagine internships and nobody does much work third year
2: right
1: what if instead assuming a different kind of legal education during the first and second year that actually was aimed at problem solving mm-hmm. and at thinking, then I'd like to see a third year of training and maybe even a fourth year of internship in which People who are mainly interested in the transfer of money between corporate entities could go on whatever path was most helpful for them to do that. I find that not very interesting. Mm -hmm. But people, lawyers who are interested in resolving the human conflicts that ordinary people have that cannot be resolved simply by a transfer of resources. Those are the people I'm most interested in. And I'd like to see those people have a third year in which if they haven't already been doing it in their first and second year, and I hope they would have been, that they'll be learning self-care, self-reflective practices, mindful awareness. They'll be studying the relevant brain science of memory and perception. They'll be studying narrative theory. And they'll be doing practicum that is nowhere near the courts. They'll be doing practicum that's interdisciplinary, that works with couples and families to do problem solving and conflict resolution from a peacemaking point of view that also can resolve legal issues. Now, when I talk that way, I sometimes get asked questions like that when I give guest law school classes, and Mm -hmm. the the sharpest students Mm -hmm. will ask, what do we need lawyers for in that picture? And it's an interesting question. And I think there are good answers to that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Again, positing a very different kind of legal education that aims to teach us the skills and understandings needed to be peacemaking problem solvers. So what is it about lawyers that they can bring to the table in an interdisciplinary conflict resolution mode that's part of my ideal vision? Mm-hmm. I, I go back to Myers-Briggs, which is a system that it's not maybe the best system or the most sophisticated, but it's easy, it's easy to talk about Myers-Briggs personality typologies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Lawyers, overwhelmingly, on Myers-Briggs tend to be thinking types, mm-hmm. not feeling types. Therapists tend to be feeling types, by which I don't mean emotion. I mean... Reaching an understanding of the experiences that are presented to us, either through analytic processes, which is the thinking type, or through a values-based response. Is this good or bad? Which mm-hmm. is the feeling type. Lawyers tend to be thinking types predominantly. And we also tend to be intuitive types in the Myers-Briggs typology. Mm-hmm. Intuitive versus senseate. Sensate types tend to be accountants who won't speculate beyond the third decimal point because the numbers aren't there. Mm -hmm. Intuitive types are the kind where if you give them seven pieces of a 20-piece jigsaw puzzle, they've Mm -hmm. already got a theory about what the picture is going to look like. And then when you give them the next puzzle piece and it turns out that idea was wrong, very quickly jumping to the next best idea about what the big picture Mm -hmm. looks like. Well, lawyers tend to be thinking intuitive types. In other words, we use our rational processes in service of getting efficiently to a big picture solution that seems to fit what's happening. And for that reason, if you have lawyers, mental health professionals, and financial professionals in the room, or to put it, uh, let me start with if you don't have lawyers in the room and you have the financial professionals who tend to want to see the data down to the third decimal point. Mm -hmm. And you've got the mental health professionals who are responding from a values and feelings perspective in which things could always get better. People could always have another conversation and go deeper. Mm -hmm. You need the lawyers to get to closure. Mm -hmm. We are the people who really do like to get it done. And we've got certain temperamental qualities that make us good at it. And if we can harness that in service of peacemaking and work with colleagues who have the other understandings and skills that we don't, what a powerful system that would be. Mm.
0: Did I answer your question? Well, you did. You did. And that's, that, that's such a, I think that, that, that is actually probably a perfect spot for, I'd like to leave with that vision because, you know, just such a beautiful vision um, of this truly integrative, education and education that i think can be very very transformative so pauline tesler i'm very thankful to you for joining the living peace podcast uh, i know i can spend hours hours and hours talking to you and, and and listening to you and exploring all these issues uh but we'll leave it we'll leave it here so thank you very much